Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Scott O'Neill, who's wrote a really terrific uh, book about his life story. And Scott, do you have a, a copy of that book that you could show them? I sadly do not have that with me. It's in the other room, and that would be really awkward. But if you go to a pause for a long question, I can sprint to it. <laughs> but it's called Be Where Your Feet Are. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Well, if, if we get a chance, I'm going to make sure that everybody gets a, uh, a copy of that. And I want to thank Bob Robinson, who connected us. Bob's a serial entrepreneur in the region and who's also involved in some amazing uh, TV and production endeavors. And so I'm thrilled that Bob made this introduction for us. And I have to say, I really loved your book. So let's start out by you telling us about your professional background. Well, sure. I've been in the sports and entertainment business for the past 25 plus years. Um, I'll, I'll start from the most current and go backwards. But uh, I recently stepped down as the CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers, the New Jersey Devils. Um, we have a venture fund called HBSE Ventures, an innovation lab called Sixers Innovation Lab, an esports business called NME, a real estate company a sports marketing firm called Elevate. Uh, um, so we have a, a built a lot of businesses. When I got there, it was a small, uh, kind of the, the Philadelphia 76ers, little mom and pop type shop. Um, and we built over $2.4 billion of value in eight years. So we had, had a wonderful, wonderful run, both through organic growth and uh, acquisition. And before that, I was the president of Madison Square Garden Sports Group. So overseeing the Knicks, um, Rangers, 50 college basketball games, boxing, tennis, et cetera. Um, an incredible place to work. I mean, certainly the center of sports entertainment in the world and pretty fun. I, I was there at a really interesting time. We spun the company out to be a separately traded public company. We put a billion two into the building and, and uh, had the chance to do a really fun turnaround in terms of culture and business and top line. It's a really incredible time. And before that, I spent about eight years at the National Basketball Association where I ran a group called Teambo, which was, at least in David Stern's eyes, the McKinsey of sports. So we built an in-house consulting practice. I, I, I took on some other businesses. I took on the CRM business. I took on the, uh, the G League, which was then the D League um, and the Canada business. But, but my primary day job was to, to run this consulting practice called Team Marketing Business Operations, where I got to work with some of the incredible, incredible operators in and around the NBA, which is, is well known to be the best run uh, teams in sports leagues. And then I had a series of jobs before that. I went to Harvard Business School. I worked at the Philadelphia Eagles and the New Jersey Nets. I ran a company into the ground, um, all that kind of stuff. But I had, had a really, I've had, I mean, I had as, as good a run as you could possibly have for me, in, you know, in terms of what I'm looking for in life. Yeah. And you're not even at the halfway point yet. That's right. So why did you write Be Where Your Feet Are? And I love that title. Thank you. Um, you know, I didn't have, an, you know, I, I was not intentional. I, I didn't have a plan. It wasn't on my list of things to do. 
but unfortunately, my best friend of 20 years took his own life. And um, his name is Wilfred Carden. And we met at business school. Uh, I was just one of those incredible human beings that you meet that bring energy, uh, love, and life into your life. And uh, he was part of the family. I mean, we, my, my kids call him Uncle Will. Um, and uh, when I got the call uh, that he had taken his own life, he uh, drove to his folks house and I uh, went up to his childhood bedroom and, um, and shot himself. And uh, I, I spiraled into a pretty bad grief and depression and all that stuff that, you know, you know, at the time I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of what it was. And, uh, and I, I kind of pulled it together and I, I spoke at his funeral and then spiraled again. And um, it was hard. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I had trouble sleeping at night. I had trouble getting up in the morning. I, I you know, at, at work, somebody would mention something. I'd burst into tears. It was, it was not the, uh, not the picture of the, uh, the, the strong, incredible, focused driven leader um that you might have in your mind i was uh, i was in pieces and uh, and began to write to heal and and what i found myself writing was was very much stories where i fell down in the lessons i learned and that that became the basis of a book um that that you see now with be where your feet are it, it's not your typical ceo book it's, it's not a victory lap it, it's it's literally uh, a series of experiences and lessons i've learned when i've when I've made mistakes and I, I found over time, Mark, and I'm sure you know this too, as, as being such an incredible entrepreneur is, is you learn lessons when you fall and fail and you don't learn many lessons when things go well. You don't, many of us don't have the discipline to, to do, go back and look back and say, okay, what went well and led to the success, you know? Uh, but when things fall, that that's where the action happens. And, and, and for better, or for worse, um, you know, I've had a few of them. Uh, I remember being, being 22 years old and I remember reading this this article that all great CEOs fail all great CEOs get fired all the blah 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 and I kept saying like that's not gonna be me I'm going <laughs> right to the moon <laughs> if you think I'm confident now you should have seen me at 22 and uh and I I've I've had it all I mean I you know other than my best friend taking his own life I've I've run a company into the ground as I mentioned before I've been fired from a high profile job I've had all kinds of issues and challenges I think we all have them um, it's just many people haven't written about them. And so I, I got to that point where I had this collection of stories. I had a friend of mine say, tell, tell me that um, who's written a, a dozen books very successfully. And he said, what if you can help one person? You know, it's like CEOs aren't writing that they're vulnerable. They're not writing that they're fragile. They're not writing about their failures. It's like, what if you could write this and actually help somebody? And, uh, and that, that put me in a process and, and got me to work. So be where your feet are is, uh, is just that it's, it's kind of a, a life leadership book, um, but it, it, it told in stories in most of them when uh, when either I or, or a close friend has chipped and fallen. I liked it because it was so authentic. You know, like you said, you read so many books. Of course, we host uh, different authors every single week, but rarely do you see somebody actually uh, put themselves out there naked uh, for all the world to see. And that's what your bu- uh, book has done. And I think people who are struggling with things when they read the book, um, they feel there's going to be a certain amount of empathy. You know, I think the people who are really thinking about doing something very bad for themselves, once they read the book and see, here you are with a Harvard MBA and all the success you had and still struggle, I think that's going to help a lot of people. So I think that's great uh, what you've been able to do. So what's your definition of mindfulness and why is that important? I, I think that um, you know my view of what's happening in the world, 
I've spoken to over a uh, hundred companies in the last two and a half months. And what I found is, is that there is an epidemic in this country and it's uh, mental health issues. And, um, and, and hopefully if you're on this call, you're doing amazing and you're happy and things are going well and the wind is at your back and your relationships are strong and you're taking care of yourself and you're taking care of others and, and, uh, and whatever you want to achieve in businesses, you're on that path. Um, but what I'm, what I'm finding or have found is that there is a struggle. Um, there's a lot of anxiety. I've experienced it in my own home with one of my daughters. Um, I've experienced it with colleagues at work, with friends. And I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about a formula for mental health and wellness and mindfulness. And, and it's really simple. It's, it's, um, you do something for your mind, something for your body, and something for your soul every day. You get the right amount of sleep, you practice gratitude, and you be where your feet are, which is put your phone down, get your head up. And um, and sounds simple uh, because it is. It's just not that easy. But but doing something for your mind is easy. You know, you you listen to this, uh, listen to you know, you listen to Mark's show. I mean, that's that's again, that's that's an opportunity to learn. You listen to a podcast. You listen to you read a book. You listen to a TED talk. One 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 freaking thing a day outside of your core job will keep your mind fresh and creative. Uh, exercise 20 minutes a day, get that heart rate going. For me, it's a Peloton or, or pick up hoop. I was telling Mark before, I was playing with my nephews last night, tweaked my back. And it was like definitely an old man injury. Like I didn't do anything except turn to go up and down court. And uh, the only thing that moves quickly these days is my mouth. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I hobbled off and have been whining ever since. But, but I would say that 20 minutes a day will, will take care of your body. And then your soul, which has a lot more to do with mindfulness than anything else, um, but I think this is a total picture, is, uh, you know, you don't have to read scriptures or get on your knees and say prayers or go to church, although I, that, that works for me. I, I do advocate for stillness every day, for 10 minutes of stillness. And, and that might be meditation. I know, Mark, you said you struggle a little bit with meditation. Hopefully we talk about that a little bit. It might be yoga. It might be just sitting outside and listening to the, the birds chirp or the wind blow into the leaves. I mean, we need 10 minutes of stillness in our lives. Um, sleep is, a, is another thing. And I, I think these are all connected. That's why I'm answering them all together. Um, you know, when I was growing up and, and up into the world, Mark, you know, we're about the same age. You might have heard this. It's like sleep is for the weak. Yeah. You know? Money never sleeps, all this other crap. And the fact is, it's like your mind, your body, and your soul have to heal. And the only time they heal is when you're sleeping. And so I, I've, I've had the good fortune in my last few jobs to, to bring in three of the top sleep experts in the world uh, to work with our athletes. And they all say the same thing. You need between six and a half and eight and a half hours a day, no matter what, no matter who you are. You can be Superman. You need to sleep. Um, and then practice gratitude is an exercise that I, I've, I've done for, for years um, when I talk to groups, which is just send, a, send a, a note of love and appreciation to your mom. So can you imagine like if everyone on this call just took like 30 seconds and just sent a note to their mom and just said like, Hey mom, I just want to tell you, I loved you. I appreciate everything you do for me. I, I know, I know that I don't say it as much as I should, um, but you're always in my heart. I really love you. Thanks mom. When I did that the first time, you know, what my mom said back to me, Mark, it wasn't, Hey son, I love you too. It was hun. Are you okay? <laughs> Think about that. My mom. Right. And so, so oftentimes I, I, I'd be, I, I, I hope that, that all of, of you on this, um, this broadcast will take a 30 day challenge and send a note of gratitude to someone in your life 
every day for 30 days, 60 seconds. And then the last one is be where your feet are, which is put your phone down, get your head up. And, and that's the easiest one. Um, and, I, and, and again, I think the one thing that's contributing most to our mental health issues um, in the society today are, is our phone, the extra appendage we've added. You know, I was at lunch, uh, at lunch the other day with four friends, hadn't seen them in a year. I come up, they're all on their phones. I was like, yo, no, we are not doing this today. Let's go. Put them in your pockets or put them in your cars. Um, I, I, I honestly don't get it. I don't. You know, at work, I have a cell phone table. I see some young people on the call. I'm sure you, you think like, okay, you're the old guy. I know you're chiseling into stone still. I totally get it. Um, <laughs> they often say like, what do you expect me to pick up a pen? I'm like, I actually do. But it has nothing to do with the phone. It has to do with connection. And I think one thing we're missing quite a bit is our phone. Our heads are down. And so you walk into a meeting, you sit around a table. I want you to look to the left and look to the right and actually have a conversation. Hey, how was your weekend? How's that project you're working on? Anything I can do to help you? How's your vacation? Like all that stuff right now is missing. It's missing in the world. Um, and so, so it's do something for your mind, something for your body, something for your soul. Get the right amount of sleep, practice gratitude, and be where your feet are. If you want to be mindful, if you want to be healthy, um, that is a pretty good formula to explore. And I, I will tell you, that is the first step to the second step, which is then taking care of each other. Um, because I, I have this notion that we have to be more aware and that, that uh, COVID has kind of kicked us out of our own zones. And I think you have an opportunity when you're feeling good and you're healthy and you're alert and good things are happening in your life. That's when you just take your level of awareness up. Who has their video off? Whose mailbox is full? Voicemail box is full. Who hasn't responded to a text? Who's struggling on a project that very rarely struggles? And are we reaching out to them proactively and say, hey, 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 can I help you? Is there anything I need? Are you doing okay? I think that's, um, that's a formula for a better world. I have to tell you, my girlfriend uh, meditates uh, every day. Uh, she started at 10 minutes until she started dating me. And now she's up to a half an hour of meditation. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a Jewish mother. And if all I sent was a note, she'd be like, that's it. It's just a note. Well, how come I'm not getting a call from you every week? So I have to make sure I call her every week. In the introduction of the book, you gave uh, you gave your 11-year-old daughter the basic formula for love and happiness that will carry her through tough times. Can you retell that story and what the audience can take away from that? Sure. Well, um, one of my daughters, I have three daughters. One of, one of them's name is Kira. And um, we were at this, um, I'm in this group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. I have been in for years and years. Uh, I've aged out of YPO now, but, but nonetheless, I'm still in, in and around the organization. And they take, um, you know, it's a global network of presidents and CEOs of big companies. And you, you get together in what they call a forum, um, once a month for four hours in a, in a highly confidential setting where you can talk about life and love and the pursuit of happiness and business and et cetera uh, with your peers, which is amazing. Uh, and then they have these events, these global events. And, and one of the events was a, a father-daughter, a preteen daughter event. It was in the backwoods of Ohio at a camp called Camp Joy. And um, they have a several like exercises for dads. Here's how you communicate with your daughters. They put you together, they separate you, but it's, it's kind of a coaching experiential fun experience. And, and uh, on the last day, they separated us and they had the daughters work on some crafts and they had the dads in this room and they, they came in, they had a psychologist come talk to us. And, and she said, uh, here's the deal. Uh, you're never going to see your daughter again. You've got 30 minutes to talk to her. What are you going to tell her? 
And, uh, and you got 20 minutes to prepare. And I was like scribbling and scratching stuff on a piece of paper and pen. I was really struggling. It, it was like the weight of it was heavy for me. Um, and what was weighing on me the most was that I hadn't had that conversation with her before. And as a dad, and I'm, I'm a loving dad, I'm a connected dad. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm actually, I'm sure. I was not taking the time to have meaningful conversations. I was literally just going through the day, day by day by day. And in this particular case, um, you know, by the time the kind of the, the proverbial, proverbial whistle blew, uh, they connected me with Kira and we were holding hands and we were walking through the woods. And, you know, I, I, I specifically remember like the crunch of the leaves walking through these woods and like me searching for words because um, I didn't have anything intelligible written on a piece of paper that I tucked in my pocket. So I said, hey, Kira, I want to tell you three things. Um, first, family, family, family. You know, she's an 11 year old girl. She's looking up at her dad. It's like family. What, what do you mean, dad? I said, well, family is most important always. And um, friends will come and go and you'll have boyfriends and you'll think they're really important. I said, but at the end of the day, we are here. We're together forever like this, you know, this. So I want you to lean in and lean on. I want you to recognize and focus on how critically important family is. And I want you to spend time there. She said, okay, dad, you know, cute little girl. Yeah. And uh, next I said, uh, it's going to be okay. She's like, what's well, going to be okay? And I said, everything, like everything is going to be okay. You're going to you'll get cut from a team, miss a shot, um, have a bad breakup, not get into the school you want to get into, crash your car, which, boy, uh, my girls – that's a whole nother story for another day, but they cannot drive. Um, we got to pull off our insurance, <laughs> my wonderful daughters. But nonetheless, um, I, I went down this list of things. I just said to her, like, it's going to be okay. It literally, like, it's always okay. And, um, and then the third thing I said was anything, anytime. And, and since that point, anything, anytime meant, meant to her, is like, I don't care if you call me at, at three in the morning or text me at 5 a.m. or wake me up out of a dead sleep. Like I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm, you got me. Like I, I will, I will never judge. I'll always love. Like just know I'm, I'm in your corner forever in a day. And uh, you got me anything, anytime. So I was family, family, family. It's going to be okay. And um, in anything, anytime. And, and that, you know, I don't know. I, I guess what I would challenge you to do is, is, is to find meaningful moments and have the conversations. And so it's like, life is chaotic. It is. It's like, you know, my house, it's like you wake up, the girls are, I'm at teenage girls. It's, it's like survive in advance. I call it the NCAA tournament in the morning. We're trying to get them out of the house without a nuclear meltdown. And then I'm at work there at school and they've got cheerleading and basketball and boyfriends, which I don't want to talk about. And then they've got like homework and, by the time I get home and they're there, how much time do I actually have a day that's meaningful? An hour, maybe 45 minutes, like some amount of time. And I just want to make sure that that 45 minutes is not spent like this. And I want to make sure that that 45 minutes is not spent like this in front of the TV watching Netflix. And then I actually engage with them for 45 minutes. If I can do it over a meal, wonderful. No phones at the table in our house. You know, no phones in the bedrooms, no electronics in the bedrooms at our house. Uh, we've got governors on everything. And yes, it does not make me a dad of the year or most popular dad. I, I, I recognize that. 
But I, I, I crave these moments. I crave these, these opportunities to create memories and have conversations that we don't have because we just go through life day by day. I talk to my girls every single day of the year, 365 days of the year. One lives in Sweden, one lives in LA, and we never miss a day. And the other day, they couldn't reach me for two hours, two hours. And they were calling up my girlfriend and they were you know, ready to call out uh, you know, special forces to go find it. <laughs> Uh, only because we speak every single day, 365 days a year, but two hours was too long that they couldn't reach their father. So I, I can definitely appreciate it. This leads me into what you, uh, the concept you mentioned in your book is, what is most important? So talk about that concept. Well, I had this great executive coach. Um, his name is Spencer Holt. And I'm not sure if any of you have had executive coaches. I've, I've had several over the years. Um, and, and he has this notion that he would say it's based on research. I'm sure it is, but he has this notion that high performers spend 65% of their time on the three things that are most important. So high performers, just talk about work first, high performers spend 65% of their time on the three things that are most important at work. And he had me go through the exercise of auditing my calendar, which I strongly suggest. Uh, so you wait until Friday, you write down the three things that matter most at work that are most important. You go through your calendar and you figure out how much of your allocated time, your meetings, your energy have been, been spent on the three most important things. When I did it the first time, I, I checked in at 23%, which was not inspiring, but, but created some good coaching opportunities and sessions. And, and what I learned was, was a couple of things. One was, um, I either have to change what I claim is most important or I have to change my process. Second thing I learned is I have to learn the magic word. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser, like many of us are, you know, and, and I, I want to say yes to my friend whose son is a freshman at Indiana University Sports Marketing Program and needs an hour of my time. Or I can pass it off to one of my young executives and they can tackle that, you know. Um, and so, so I had to learn the magic word of no. And I had to find some discipline. I mean, and that's what I've, I've been spending the last two years uh, doing is finding discipline. And um, so, so the, you know, I've added personal, like what's, what's critically important to me personally? What's my most important? I would say like my mind, body, soul, sleep, gratitude, uh, be where your feet are. Those are my WMI of, of personal. Like I know if I do those things every day, I'm, I'm healthier. Um, and then I added a relationship and I, I always put three relationships and they typically rotate per week for me where I have, my wife stays on there every time because that is for me, uh, the one I need, need the most attention in and on. But, but for the most part, I have, I have, uh, three or four things baked in on personal relationships and work. And then I audit my calendar. I do it once a month. Um, that might be overkill, but I'm, I'm a hair, I'm a hair neurotic. But I, I, any audit on what you do and how you are spending your time is, is worthwhile time. And your, your WMI at work is, is so easy. And if you don't know what the three things are that will make you successful at work, then you got, you got bigger problems. But, uh, but I will tell you, like, WMI is a critical, critical. Thing. And something that I will say that, that I didn't understand when I founded a company called, called Hoops TV, which I subsequently ran into the ground. Um, and as I reflect back and look back at, at some of the reasons why it's because I had this, it was, I'd never run a company. I'd never been a president. I, I had this vision of what a president should be or could be, or, um, and I was doing all that stuff 
and I wasn't focusing on the next fundraise. I wasn't focusing on traffic and I wasn't focusing on revenue. The three things that actually matter. Well, this leads me to ask you about when, when you're writing this book, and I guess you did it during the pandemic, how did that affect what you wrote and you personally and your family? How did that make changes in your life? I, I want to be sensitive to how bad the pandemic was. I, I think we've, you know, we've lost some 650,000 people or some, some crazy number of people who passed away um, the pandemic and, and others have suffered and, and struggled and, and others have put their lives at risk so that, so that we could keep our comfortable lives. So, so with, with that being said, I want to tell you that the pandemic for me and my family was, was, was wonderful. Like I, um, I hadn't had, I hadn't been to a family dinner in 25 years. Um, and, uh, you know, I work in a business where I work a lot of nights. Um, when I was at MSG, I was working, I don't know, 200 nights a year or so. So I'm just kind of like, I'm a visitor in the house and, and I became a full-time resident and, um, and that was special. And that, it's um, having like connected connection time with, with my wife was, was great. Um, going on a walk, we call them a, a non-transactional walk, which I'm sure there's a more romantic way to, uh, to name it. Uh, but when we're on regular non-transact and non-transactional walk for us is we don't talk about the girls have to be here. We have to do this. When's our zoom. Okay. What was our schedule? We don't do any of that on our walks. We just talk about each other, our lives, our dreams, what we're thinking of, you know, what's keeping us up at night how we can connect. So I, I did quite a bit of that um, with my ladies. Um, it was amazing. Like I got so, I got more one-on-one time in the last year and a half than I've had in a lifetime. Um, I remember, uh, it's kind of embarrassing to tell you, but uh, at, at dinner, I actually bought conversation starter cards when, when it started. And it's, it's awkward because I I feel like I'm the kind of person that can talk to just about anybody. Um, but I was trying to have like real conversations and and remember, I mean, during the pandemic, we had social justice issues. Um, we had a political f- fiasco. We had all, we had real issues that my daughters, who are very strong-willed, wanted to talk about, and and so I, I wanted to start kind of opening up and having real conversations. It was great. So anyway, I got these cards that lasted about a week, and it started with like, "What's your favorite vacation?" Stuff like that's so like ridiculous to talk about, but it, it got us. I don't know, just got us thinking and talking and, um, you know, and, and, um, they had ridiculous theme night dinners. It was fun. Like I, I will say, um, it was, it was a time I'll never forget. It was a time I'll always uh, be grateful for and appreciate, but it certainly changed, changed our lives and, and the way we engage as a family. I think either people came out really stronger in their relationships or as we saw in so many people, uh, ended up getting divorced, but I thought it was a good time that you really spent a lot more time with your loved ones and spent more time appreciating them. So uh, I think that was great that you were able to do that. You write about the importance of staying present. How do you define it and how long did it take you to achieve that? Well, it's a work in progress for me. I, I, um, I think it is for everybody. Um, I, I guess what I would tell you, well, I'll tell you a story, you know, some version of this is in the book, but um, you know, when we were going through the trust the process error at the Sixers, it was rough. I mean, it was the, you know, we had over a three year period, more losses than any other team in NBA history. And, um, and I, I've, you know, I have a competitive problem, if you will, like I hate to lose. Um, 
you know, I certainly, you know, I was leading the charge on the drill. So the drill was hard. Um, but, and I knew what we signed up for and I knew what we were doing. Um, but on a, on a, on a specific night, on a particular night, I, I will tell you that I did not handle it as well as I could have, you know, losing, um, you know, and it got so nasty that, um, you know, I asked my, my family not to come to any more games and my partners in the business not to come to any more games. And then I would just go and just take the thrashing. Um, and I was getting catcalled every second of every game and they weren't like, Hey, you're awesome and charming. Um, so it was rough. And so I, I would tell you, like, I came home one particular night and, you know, my wife's, you know, I was stomping around the house. We just gotten thrashed again. And I may have been booed myself. I think I was on the court for a presentation. I got booed off the court. It was, it was just rough. You know, it's like you open up social media and people are saying things that are like unconscionable about you and to you and threatening you and all that kind of crazy stuff. And, and I got home, I was, I was, I was mad, you know, and I stomped around the house and my wife's like, Hey, what's up? What's going on? I was like, did you see the game? You know, I had that kind of like nasty tone that I can have. She's like, yeah, I saw the game, Scott. Uh, I did. I was like, did you hear us get booed off the court? Like, are you, are you serious? You know, I'm like, like, Scott, I don't even think I need my TV on to hear the booze. Yes, I heard the booze. And uh, I was like, well, she's like, well, what? You know, I said, well, what do you expect? And she's like, well, I expect my husband and, and the father of my children. That's what I expect. Now I was like, whoa. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was like one of those moments in your life where you're just grateful you married the right person um, who's strong enough and loves you enough to give you the right feedback. And, and what she was saying is, is like, hey, I totally get it. Like there's outside forces that are hard but you walk through this door, like I, that can't live. Cause her, her big thing with me was like, how many games are you going to lose? Like how bad are you going to be for how long? And, um, and I, I get that Joe. Like I honestly, like I, I understand what she's saying. Um, but for me, I, I, I called a friend of mine. He's like, I have a worry tree. And I was like, what the heck is a worry tree? So, well, I come home. He's a, a banker. I come home. I put my hand in this tree. And my worries just fly up into the tree and i was like yeah i've been searching my property there are no worry trees i'm like he's like no that's not the point my point is that you need to transition like whatever your transition is just understand what that transition is and how you're going to leverage it so that you can better compartmentalize your emotion and, and, and i love the notion of that so so for me it's like my car ride home. like i i truly try to um howl at the moon or um sing as loud as I can, or uh, just open my windows and relax and chill or put on some calm. There's like an app like that gets me to chill um, so that when I get home, I can be a dad and I can be a husband. And, um, and I think finding whatever that transition point is for you and actually actively managing it has been pretty transformational. But it's a work in progress. I, I, don't, I, I wish I was great. I wish I was great. Um, uh, but that's something I, 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 I'm, I'm in the battle every day. I try to do it. Well, I apologize for booing you all those times and calling you all those names, but hey, you did start <laughs> winning again. So yeah, as a Philadelphia scary, fan, I scary did, times. Yeah, scary my ankles times. are taped up so I, I can jump on and off the bandwagon uh, all the time. Did you leave your uh, most recent position because you felt you lacked balance? Because based on what you wrote, it seems like this has been a struggle for you like everyone else who's a high achiever. Yeah, I don't I don't put much stock in the word balance or or the pursuit of it. I, I don't I I honestly um I believe in being present 
you know, hence the book, be where your feet are. It's, it's, it's not like there is no, there's no joy in balance. Um, and I, I don't, I've never met a successful person uh, who doesn't work unreasonably hard. I just, I, I don't think that's real life. I think the line between work and home and home and work is completely vanished. It was thinning before COVID now it's completely vanished. And so I, I go back to like moments that matter um, and creating those and consciously creating those. That, that's what I think is most critical. In terms of why I left, no, it was time to go. It was, it was, um, it was a, it was a wonderful run. We built, I mean, the culture there was, is as fun a uh, culture as I've, I've ever been a part of. I work with some of the most amazing people in the world. Um, the stuff we were able to accomplish was incredible. I just think at some point in the arc of a company, um, when there's a strategic change in terms of what the approach is going to be, that an, a new CEO sometimes is the best, most uh, fresh way to continue to grow and lead the company. And fortunately, a good friend of mine is, is running the company. His name is Tad Brand. It's wonderful. Uh, for me, I've, I've never been happier. I've spent the last, you know, two and a half months on an incredible kind of emotional, spiritual, physical, mental health journey that has has put me in a, a total another state. So I was a, it's been incredible. I mean, I I haven't looked back for a second. I I, I typically don't. I typically look forward. Um, but I, I love my time at HBSC. I I, I cherish the memories. Philadelphia is uh, is my home. I've lived there for eighteen years. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to to what's next. So you were in Mozambique with your daughter this summer, and I connected you with my cousin, and I think you met up with her, right, when you were in Mozambique. Yes, pretty, pretty cool lady. Yeah, so we, we um, she's doing incredible work over there. Um, so I was over there with my daughter and, and uh, 20 other teenagers and helping to build a school um, right outside of Maputo, which is the capital. And Mozambique is the third poorest country in the world. It sits on the southeastern um, shore of Africa, the southern tip bordering on South Africa. Uh, definitely a third world country. The area we were building, they have uh, 97% unemployment, just to give you a sense of, of what we're dealing with. Um, I was in many, many houses with no electricity, no running water. Um, it was it was heavy. I mean, it was it was perspective building. And, um, and I learned a ton from these kids. I'll just give you one. I, I, I can tell you a hundred stories. I, I, I won't bore you, but I'll, I'll tell you one. I, um, on this site, this work site, I, I don't have any kind of, uh, skill. So they put me in the unskilled labor part and our, our foreman didn't speak any English and I don't speak any Portuguese. Um, so effectively, uh, first few days I was, um, either mixing cement or, or carting it out, carting it, um, in a wheelbarrow. And I hadn't done that since I was 14 years old. I and mean, I, when I was 14, I was digging pools. And, uh, and oftentimes found myself, um, you know, rolling a wheelbarrow up onto the cement truck just because we were building the, the patios around the pools. And I'd go up the two by four and I was so little, I was probably 80 pounds. I just kind of tip over and I didn't really laugh at me or yell at me. So I was pretty confident this time, you know, more like, you know, I'm probably a hundred pounds heavier. And, uh, and I was going down this hill with the cement and resources are so precious there. I just didn't want to spill anything. So I was a little conscious over like, okay, what am I going to do? And, I go down this hill and I had to make a left turn and go up a little ramp and then put it on the, the sidewalk that we built and then just roll it over the classroom and two kids would pick it up and go into the classroom and, and we're, we're off to the races. But my first run, I was going down. I knew I wasn't going to make the left turn because I was picking up too much speed. And I just went off into the sand. And so I was just kind of nudging it forward like an inch every 10 seconds just with my, my hip just to push it because it was like, you know, two inches, three inches of sand. 
And these two gals came over, um, Sophie and Kate, and it's like, hey, Scott, you want me to lift it up and put you back on? I was like, yeah, they just lifted it up and put me back on the path. And, you know, off I went. And, uh, and I think it's really analogous to life. Like, I, I think that that path to me, you know, with the wheelbarrow full of cement, probably weighs 150 pounds, um, being on this little skinny little path, going down this hill. Like, to me, like, that's life. Like, life is hard. And nobody talks about it. Like, nobody talks about how, how hard life is. They talk about how great life is, and life is great. But life is hard. And, and if you want to stay on that path, and whatever that path is for you, it's different for everybody. If it's like, you know, living the right way, um, being a good good family person, being successful at work, however you define success, uh, having great relationships, driving difference in the community, whatever, whatever those things are for you, um, on that path is really hard. The only thing harder than that path is when you get off the path. And, um, and for me, off the path was deep in sand with a 150-pound wheelbarrow. Um, and, the la- and, and what I didn't do was ask for help. I waited for someone to ask me for help. And so, so the, the, the lesson for me that I kept focusing on, because I was doing this for nine hours, a few days in a row, was like, man, oh, man, oh, man. You get off that path, raise your hand and get help. Um, if you see somebody off that path, go help them. Um, in the meantime, appreciate that you're not alone and appreciate that that path is really hard. And I do everything you can to stay on it. Those are the kinds of lessons that I walked away from Mozambique with. And I walk, I got back to America, but I got really sick over there, which is a whole other story for another time. We got pulled over by the military several times, which was another total adventure. And crossing a third world border, I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, but uh, but I had moments over there where I was like, man, oh man, oh man. Then I get back home and I'm so thankful and appreciative to be home. And I drive up to my house, you know, after being in these little like, you know, corrugated metal one room shanties at best um, where people are offering us food. And I feel like crap. I'm like, I, no, I don't want to take your food. And I don't want to be disrespectful, but I don't, I, the last thing I want to do is take food out of their house. And I drive into my house. And I'm like, am I, what, what the heck am I doing? Um, and it was humbling. It's humbling to be with people who find joy and happiness and hard work. And yet, you know, if you can imagine the worst area of the country you've ever been in in your life, that would be like the four seasons to the folks I was fortunate enough to spend time with in Mozambique. So, so I, I definitely found some perspective. Um, seeing my daughter lead was really, really cool. If you have kids, um, seeing how they interact, and then having the chance to, to, to you know, I love developing leaders. It's one of my passions in life. So to have twenty teenagers to be able to work with them every day for three weeks was. It was awesome. So I, uh, the group was called Heffy. We went with, um, so it's humanitarian groups and four thousand kids around the world. Uh, it's very faith based. It's it incredible, incredibly um, enriching experience. And that one, I'm really like too hyped to do again because uh, it was hard. I mean, it was a it was a grind. Um, this but sounds I, I, like I a it. second book for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, when I hurt my back yesterday, a friend of mine, Ralph. You know, he's like, I got your second book title. It's I got your back. I'm like, that's not funny. <laughs> As I'm laying on the ground, writhing in pain. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. I, I know you wrote six books. I, I think I might be done at one. <laughs> well, uh, we have some questions from the audience. On the flip side of saying no, can you remember an incident where someone or some organization said no to you, but your persistence turned it into a yes? Yeah, I mean, that's just, I think that's a bit the story of my life. Um, Let's see. Um, I, I guess the best example, it's going to be a sales example. I don't, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but um, when I was with Madison Square Garden, 
Um, you know, we put a billion dollar bill, $1.2 billion into the building. We had to, to knock out some deals to, to pay for it, obviously. And, and I remember, um, Delta, we were working on the airline categories, one of the categories we're working on. And, um, and Delta said, no, we don't even want to look at it. And, um, and we weren't getting too much traction in other places. And then, and then we went back to them uh, with, a, with a different angle of, of them rebuilding New York and rebuilding their business angle in New York. And they flipped and ended up being one of our, our anchor partnerships, which was one of the biggest deals um, in that category ever done in the world. So, so, so that would be an example. Um, but, but life is a, is a, I mean, I think life's a series of no's, right? I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I've, um, I've been part of, uh, organizations where we've had to go raise money. Um, and, and that is, that is the, the default position is no, you know, um, I've been in front of venture capitalists and, you know, I think they say no, I don't know, 99.8% of the time. Yeah. Uh, and all you need is one or two yeses. Um, you know, I've worked under, uh, under the thumb of private equity for the last eight years. You know, that's, that's a no. I mean, we've gotten so many no's in terms of building businesses or investing. And, and at some point it's just kind of refining and sheer will to get some of these things through the system. Uh, and grew, grew a pretty big business doing it that way. So, so yeah, so I, I think it's just, that's what, that's what life is, but, um, and, uh, that's the fun part. At what point do you, when you hear enough no's that you walk away and do something else as opposed to wasting your time by continuing to go and fight maybe a losing battle? I mean, at what point do you know that no is no? Yeah, I, I tend to walk. I, I, you know, I read this quote, so it's not mine, but I read this quote the other day and, and um, it's from a book and um, Ashley Whiting was on her, her, uh, her Facebook account and said, Something like, um, when you see a glass, or are you? Do you see it half full or half empty? And and in this story, um, the guy says, "I'm just grateful to have a glass." You know, which I think <laughs> is just awesome. You know, it's like a great yeah. perspective. So, so I, I wake up like pretty grateful every day and pretty happy every day, extremely optimistic, and I'm very passionate. And so, so I, when you say no, it's it's a complicated question because it's such an open ended question there's so many different variants as to what the no is i oftentimes rather a no than a maybe um because you you can really assess where the objections are to know and when you assess the objections then you understand like what the path is to a yes or a walk away but when if you were to quit after one i mean i'll tell you with my book it's kind of like a humbling story i have plenty of these but um you know i i've just been in the business i mean i i know you know, most of the people who run the talent agencies in the world. And so getting an agent should have been relatively easy and simple. I mean, my friends are running. I mean, I was literally the godfather of the, of the children of, of a guy who runs one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. And um, we grew up together, two young idiots. Um, but uh, but he, he set me up with somebody to see. And, um, you know, the guy sits down for lunch and he's just like, yeah, there's no way I'm representing you because this book will never sell. I was like, whoa, that's a quick lunch. The <laughs> next friend of mine set me up with two of his friends who read my book. Um, and they're big time agents. And, you know, I was like, hey, because because you know, I, I went by myself the last one. This, this next guy I was like, hey, can you like sit there with me? And, you know, and just like it'll help. He's like, sure. So it's like a a, a young woman, I, although they're all kind of young to me, and then an older guy. And um, 
And this woman comes and she's a, a, a top literary agent. And she is like literally shredding me for 20 minutes. And I was like, okay, 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 stop, stop, stop. Let me just, let me just test for understanding here. Did you just say, I can't write. This isn't a book. Nobody will ever be dumb enough to buy it. And if somebody does, nobody will ever read it. She's like, pretty much. I was like, great. Thanks for the feedback. And, um, and I went to the other guy and he said, uh, he's like, oh, the only difference for me is like, I know I can sell it. Some, some publisher will buy it. I was like, hey, guys, thanks for your time. I'm going to go uh, find someone who believes in me. So I, I will tell you, like, if I stopped at those two no's, um, I'm not sitting here with you. You know, if I stopped at those no's, like the notes I get on LinkedIn from, because that's how people usually track me down, like of people who said like, hey, this book changed my life. This makes me want to be a better father, a better husband. You know, hey, I was going through a really tough time in life. I needed this. Like I've had thousands, and I'm not kidding you, thousands of people reach out and say like, thank you. If I stop, like what, whatever, what, I don't know. I just haven't found the easy path through life. I just haven't. And like, I hope you do. I hope you have the easiest path. If you're listening to this, like everything is easy. Like the wind's at your back. Every deal you go for happens. Every person you hire is a genius. Every company you start blows up and is like a billion dollars. I hope it is. For me, boy, I am trudging through sand uphill with an anvil on my back, dragging a piano behind me. And sometimes things go well and sometimes they don't. And if I like back down at every no I got, I'd be sitting back at the nets as a marketing assistant still. I would say that's the story of my life. I cold called Jeff Laurie at the, at the Philadelphia Eagles over a hundred times before his assistant's like, mercy, I will get you to somebody here. Like, I don't, I don't have that gear. So I, I believe in things. When we were growing HBSC, like, I mean, the deals we did, and look, some didn't work out. So it's, it's not, I don't have a perfect track record. But I'm very passionate about what I do and what I want to accomplish. And I, I try to, I do the work, I do the announce. I don't have a lot of people a lot smarter than me put it together, but I, I have a vision for, for what can happen. And, and no, I mean, sometimes no is no for sure um, when it comes to business. But I, I will tell you, like, I'm just trying to hear what the path is. No, because the return's not high enough. No, because I didn't lay out the facts well enough. No, because I need to do more research. No, because I need to find customers in advance. No, because I like, what, what are we trying to accomplish? And then um, if those, those all stars align and you just have to do more work, I just do more work. But I, I, I don't know. Like, no, no is, is a, like I said, it's to me better than maybe. I have to tell you, you must be my twin brother. Everything you just said resonates with me. I, I one time when I was a sports writer, I called Larry Holmes 37 times before he let me interview him. And That's he finally awesome. did. And he said, I'm going to give you this interview, but I swear to God, if you ever call me again, I will find where you live and beat you in front of your mother. <laughs> and he sent me an autographed picture saying I would be the next Howard Cosell. And so I like that. The other one was I wrote a book on turnarounds and my, at my first book was with McGraw-Hill and they turned it down. They said, nobody's going to be interested in this. And I wrote to 47 publishers and they all uh, turned me down and said, who's going to want to read a book for small businesses about how to turn around your small business? So I, I wrote to him and said, I'll even take no advance. I'll even pay for all the copies you don't sell, everything. No, no, no. So finally, my editor, McGraw-Hill, said, listen, there's a guy at Adams Media, and he ran a small business, and it failed. I think he might be interested. So I sent him the information. He didn't call me. He sent me back a check and the contract. And that That's book awesome. was named one of the 30 best books uh, by executive book summaries in 2000. 
and it sold out in the first two weeks. All the copies sold out. Right. And think about it. Think if you just fold. It's yeah. like life's hard. Like life is freaking hard. And anything you want to do that's worthwhile, any pursuit that you think is in the pursuit of greatness, like if it's an easy path, everybody will do it and then it'll become hard. <laughs> it is. But I feel like you, I'm always carrying the anvil, walking through the sand, everything. <laughs> Every freaking day. I keep wondering, when is it going to be easy? And then never, I'm yeah, 60. Yeah. Well, it's still I, not I, easy. I would always say that. One time. One time, I just want an easy walk. Just once, you know? Yeah, Hasn't I'm with you. Yet. There's a question from the audience. I'm curious, how do you see empathy playing a part of your daily interactions? I, I will say that uh, that is something that I have grown. My my empathy has, my ability to be empathetic has grown. Um, I, I generally... Um, the companies that I am running have for the most part been turnarounds. Um, and in, in, I'll just talk business person. I'll talk personal in, in business. When you're in a turnaround situation, like empathy, the empathy gene is just, does not um, get stoked. If you will, um, you are under a ton of pressure. Um, it typically is either and or environmental, the people, the product, the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you are driving change very aggressively. So if, if you were to speak to my, my colleagues who have worked with me um, in, the, in the early days of my, my change situations, they would not say, whoa, no, that's an empathetic leader. Um, you would say, wow, that's the guy who makes the decisions very quickly. Um, in fact, in, at HBSC, there are only 12 people remaining from when I started. Um, so just to give you a sense that so so that would not be um, now as you move to a more mature organization and you start to build out structure and you start to focus on what type of culture you want, how you create the what we used to say, the greatest place to work in the world, then the empathy genes has to play a role Um for, for me, uh, I don't know if you're, I'm sure, hopefully you've all been to Disney World. It's not my favorite place, um, unfortunately, but um, my, it's, it is for my daughters and my wife. And, um, and I, I was just struck at Disney. Um, I remember going to like the jungle ride or whatever it is. You go up there and there's some gown, it's like 900 degrees and she's in this like long dress, this period piece, probably like sweating through it. And then I'd be like, why is she smiling? You know? Um, and then, but you know, like people self-select into Disney, right? That's what they self-select in. So at, at my last two companies, people were self-selecting in for, for the type of run we were going to make. And so, you know, after two years, people kind of got it. Like we were going to be um, a world-class organization. We were going to work in reasonably hard. We were going to be intellectually curious. Um, we we're going to be extraordinary teammates. And we were going to kind of redefine what it meant to create a great workplace. Uh, we were going to focus on personal and professional development. I do a lot of mind, body, soul stuff, which is not for everybody. Um, but, but the people that came in after two years self-selected in. So just like that gal at Disney working at that terrible ride in 95 degree weather with 98% humidity is smiling. Uh, the people at my last two companies kind of understood the drill and they were kind of all in on that. And so my empathy then became like, how do I get to know my, you know, I was working with my friends. So how do I get to know them and understand what's happening in their lives, uh, what their dreams are, what their goals are, what they want to achieve and accomplish. Um, and so I can help them get there. Um, 
I think a, a really good example is, I, I don't know if, if many of you have fired people. I've um, unfortunately fired hundreds and hundreds of people in my life. And, um, and I do it very differently. And so, um, so I, I guess this would be a, a good example of empathy. So I, I, um, I have my notion on firing people is that they were wonderful when I hired them. They were smart. They were driven. They were successful. They had a good work ethic. They were well-connected. They had great experience. And I hired them, and they were A-pluses. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That's it's life. And it could be me as a manager or leader. It could be their supervisor. It could be the culture is not a fit. It could be just, could be a hundred different things. Could be the business shifted right under their feet and they haven't adjusted. Um, so oftentimes we'll call someone in and say, Hey, you know, Mark, um, I just, this is going to be a tough conversation. Now, Mark wouldn't be surprised because I, I don't let things sit. I don't like, I I'm, I'm very comfortable with uncomfortable situations. I'm very, very comfortable with real feedback. I'm comfortable with bad news. So Mark would know that like it hasn't been going great. Mark, how's it going? Good, good, good. I was like, hey, your, your career here is not going in the right direction. Like it's not a fit. And your ability to grow your career, your ability to like be successful here is not happening. And it's at that time right now, we have to make some decisions together. So here's what I would like to do. I'm not sure how long it's going to take you but I would like you to actively start looking for a job and I will be your advocate. Okay. So you want to talk to anybody in this business, you let me know. I'll make a phone call. Okay. If you want me to be a reference, I'm your reference. Um, here's what I'll say. And I'll go through like the, the excellent attributes that Mark has. And I'll say, Hey, I'd like to keep this between me and you. That's okay. It's like, yeah, of course. And your contract with me is you're still going to work hard because if you go off the reservation, they don't have to throw you out of here and it'll be uncomfortable for everybody. Now, how great is this for Mark at this point? Okay. Now he knows he's struggling because I've let him know it's been six months. Here's feedback. I need you to do this, this, this. It's not happening. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, Mark. Hey, you really missed on this project. Hey, Mark, I need you to do something. So he's gotten the feedback. Now we're getting to that point where he's scared. Okay. I've been out of work. Okay. I've been in a situation where I've gotten foreclosure notices on my house because I've been, been out of work and out of luck and out of money. Okay. It sucks. Okay. I don't want to put anybody in that situation. I don't want to put them at risk. I don't want their families to be sideways. I don't want any of that. I want Mark to have a great opportunity to, to continue his career in this business or others. And so, so for him, he's like, I'm not valuing way. I don't have to pay severance. I keep a relationship. It's a really small industry, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and I get Christmas cards from a lot of holiday cards from a lot of people who are fired, a lot, most, because I didn't put them at risk. I didn't treat them like crap. I didn't treat them like a piece of meat. I treat them like human beings. I treat them like friends and partners. And so, so there's a, and by the way, HR group, not thrilled. Not, not, I'm not their favorite. Uh, I, I don't get the gold stars from the HR group, but I think I should. You know, I, I think the way we look at and treat people, um, and by the way, what a great message. Because, you know, especially young people, the, 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 um, the Gen Zers, like they all talk. They, they tell each other what they're making, what their races are, what their bonuses are how they're being treated, meetings, like nothing is, like there's no, it's full transparency. And so how you treat people will very much inform how people see you as a leader. And so I'll be worse. So, so I, I think a, a good, uh, a good example of empathy. Don't so, answer a short question. And that was, it, it was great. And I relate exactly to it. Cause you know, most people know when you're firing them, they want to be fired. They know it's not going well. And they're, they just don't want to pull the plug themselves. And when you do it, it's almost a relief to them. But when you do it in a way that's constructive for them and you're helping them 
because you already knew they were talented, it just wasn't a good fit. Uh, that's the best of all things. So we only have about four minutes left. So I want to ask you a couple, a few quick questions. One is, what was it like working for David Stern and what did you learn from him? So for those of you who don't know, David Stern was the former commissioner of the NBA. I worked there for seven and a half years. Um, his tail end of his career, uh, he was first off a mentor, a teacher, a coach, a friend until the day he died. Um, he was also like the the meanest man I've ever met in my life. I mean, and the toughest human being I've ever worked around. Um, but boy, I mean, I would do anything for him. Uh, and look, I, I, I was the I was the victim, just as many of us were that were in his line of sight of screaming and yelling and bullying and threatening and all this crazy stuff. He I didn't call me so many words I had to look him up. So <laughs> it was a rough, it was a rough environment, rough, rough environment. Um, but I loved him. Um, loved like love, 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 like a dad. And I, I can tell you stories that um, of when he stepped to the plate for me as a human being, that would blow your mind. Um, this guy is, uh, he was, is um, still a figure that in my life that's, that's, that's made a profound impact. But boy, was he tough. I mean, he, he fished me out of some personal issues uh, several times, helped my wife and I several times. Um, and was there when I needed him every single time. Um, nobody demanded more. Like he was uh, the relentless pursuit of perfection was his thing. Uh, he believed that um, micromanagement was underrated. <laughs> and that management by fear and intimidation was the best way to get the best results out of people. And that that's, and I would question him. I, I People were afraid of him. Like we would get on a plane and people would run to the back and I would sit right across. I was young. You know, I sit right across from, I'm like, Hey, this is the best guy in the history of the business. He created this business. And if you're willing to take a beating, you know, verbal beating, you could literally like, I mean, I got, we'd be flying out West. I get four or five hours with that guy. And he would put me on the hot seat and grill me on my business. And he was so curious. He read all the time. I mean, this was, you know, he's an older, older guy. So he would get on a plane. He got nine inches stacked up of articles to read. And not just on sports and not just on business, but life sciences and, you know, uh, geopolitical stuff. Because he understood the connectedness of the world. He understood, like, the, the global nature of the world, how everything was changing. And so when Magic Johnson um, contracted HIV, he knew who the best doctors in the world were. He knew that, that basketball was a platform to drive change and, and completely um, change the, the narrative around the world on, on a really complex topic because he'd done the work and had the connects and, you know, like I just, and I'll tell you, I cannot say enough about that man and the impact that he's had on, on the world, the sports world, uh, the people that are fortunate to uh, work around him and me. So there's two uh, questions left. One is going to be, of course, what are you, what's your plans for the future? But before we ask that question, which will be the last question, uh, we have a question from the audience. Uh, this person's a first year graduate student here. What's your biggest piece of advice for breaking into this small industry? And I'm guessing he's talking about the basketball world. Sports. Yeah. Or, or, or more widely sports. Um, easiest way to get in is like to be willing to sell. I mean, you'll, you'll get hired in, in a day um, because you don't get paid any money. And, you know, you go into the right organization and they'll, they'll teach you how to be a professional and they'll teach you how to sell. You'll make them more money than they'll pay you. And, uh, and you got to flip in the door. Um, otherwise, like I would be spending time 
seeing who knows who. Uh, I'm sure you know enough people who know enough people and you need to, to get in front of people. Third thing is that I would just be building value. It's like, I'm so exhausted by informational interviews. I just stopped doing them. But like, if you come with an idea or you come with a process or you come with a, an, like something to help drive forward or make my life better or my business better, it's like think, you know? And then how are you going to follow up? I remember my wife got hired. My wife's been in the sports business. She retired when we, we had kids, but, but was in the sports business. She got her job at the NBA because she was applying in um, GLG, the global licensing group. So merchandise and trading cards and all that kind of stuff. But she ended up getting hired. But her follow-up after her interview was a ball, like a bath, an NBA ball. And she signed it. And the card said, uh, working to her future boss, working for you, this autograph might actually be worth something someday. Like that to me is like, I'm always really creative and smart and driven. But like, how are you standing out? You know, it's like, I, I remember I, I was talking to this, this uh, young man and, um, you know, he was talking about how he was struggling. And I'm like, but what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Like, are you participating in your own failure, your own success? It's like, you keep doing the same thing over and over and over. It's the definition of insanity. Expect different results, but you get the same thing. And so like, what are you going to do differently? Like, are you going to reach out to people? You know, are you going to make connections? Are you going to go to conferences? Are you well-read? Are you reading the three things, Sportico, SBJ, Front Office Sports? Are you reading those three things every day? How are you con connecting with the people you're reading about? Like, get in the game. Like, the, the whole, like, it's really hard. Sure, life's hard. You know, you want to go work at Goldman Sachs. It's hard. You want to go work at McKinsey. It's hard. You want to go write a, a you know, best-selling book like Mark. It's hard. Like, all this stuff is hard. The question is, is like, what are you willing to do to get there? And it never gets any easier, unfortunately. So the last question uh, for you is, what's your own future? What, what are you working on now? What are you, what's your plans? I, um, I haven't done much um, toward that end yet. I mean, I've been in, as I mentioned, Mozambique and then Lake Tahoe and LA and Lake Powell. It's been kind of fun. Now I'm in Utah having some fun out here. Um, so I'm going to get back in October and think through it. Um, I'm either going to go back and kind of rinse and repeat or I'm going to go raise money and build a big company. Um, I know what my why is. I just don't know what the what. My why is that I, I want to help develop the next great generation of leaders. And I want to build a platform that can drive change in the world and make the world better. So my why is really crystal clear to me. And I, I think the best way to do that is through sports and entertainment. I just don't know what that what is. That's what I'm going to figure out. Well, I could have spent the rest of the day with you. And you know we have enough questions that I could have filled up the rest of the day for you. Uh, but hopefully maybe we'll help you back again sometime to I would love uh, continue on this conversation. And we wish you the best with this book. Wish you the best with whatever you're doing. And you have to reach out to us and let us know how we can help you. Appreciate you, Mark. And remember to be where your feet are, everybody. Have a great rest of the day, everyone. And I'll see you all on Friday for our next uh, show. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.